Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel, Mercer County. Enjoy the message. Well, good morning, good friends. It's great to be with you. You know, that song, it's sort of, in my mind, I have this little picture. Um, You ever been in, like, your house and, like, you hear something, but there's noise in the house, and you're like, everybody quiet down, quiet. And then you stop and you listen, and then you hear the mouse or whatever it is. Um, That's what I feel like. Sometimes life is so busy that for an hour on a Sunday, everybody quiet, and we just listen, and we hear what the Lord would have for us. And so this morning, we're going to be turning to Mark chapter 10, and if you would kindly turn there in your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, we do have some available, a smattering that are in some of the chairs in front of you. It's always good, I said Mark 10, Mark 9 actually, it's always good to look at the text, see what it says, flip back to the parallel passages, etc. And and so that's our intention today. We're also going to be celebrating communion this morning uh, toward the conclusion of our time together. And so let's pray. Father, we do ask uh, to hear, Lord, and we do, we take a few moments in the midst or in our week, beginning of our week that we might hear from you. And so, Lord, we do pray that uh, your Holy Spirit would come and speak, Lord, uh, to each heart, every heart here in a different place, uh, different things going on, um, but all need uh, to come into your presence. And so that's what we seek to do now. And we invite your presence to speak to us through your word. In Jesus' name, uh, amen. Now, when we were last together, Jesus and a few of his disciples, three of his disciples, they were up Uh, at the top of Mount Hermon, and there they had the opportunity uh, to see the unveiled glory of Jesus Christ, they, that is, uh, Peter, James, uh, and John. And among other things, one of the things that it accomplished is it allowed them to put into perspective the events that were about to come on Jesus. We are maybe now four months away um, from the crucifixion of Christ. It's been probably the last Uh, 10 months or so that Jesus has been specifically saying, look, I want to get away with the disciples, you guys, and I want to prepare you for what's about to come. And in the midst of that, he takes away three of them. I'm not sure why just three of them, but he takes three of them away and he unveils his glory. He's transfigured there before them. And you recall the impact that that had on them. I say recall because we talked about it last week, if you were with us, that many years later, 30 years later, Peter would reference the majestic glory of Christ that he had the opportunity to see. Um, John, in the, first, or in the Gospel of John, in the first chapter, he would discuss that unveiling there. Both It made an impact on them um, for decades to come afterward. And Peter, you may remember, even, he said, I don't want to leave. Let's just stay here. Let's build your booths. People can come up. They can sit. They can listen. They can be taught by you. But Jesus said, no, we need to go down. Uh, and we need to make our way back into what is the valley. He didn't say those words exactly, but that's what happened. And I want to take a moment, or today, I want to take our time today to consider that the mountaintop experiences are great, aren't they? We love them. We go on our retreats. We go on a little short-term mission trips. Uh, we go into the prisons and we serve. We do these things, and man, that was great. We come on a Sunday morning, and it was the best. I never want to leave. So most of you don't think that about Sunday morning. I never want to leave, though, you think. But the mountaintop experiences are not meant for you to stay there. They're to prepare you 
for the valley experiences. And the valley experience is the very next thing that these guys come to. Now, you remember in Mark chapter 9 that in verse 6 it said that the, all three of them were terrified. There was something about being in the presence of Jesus' glory that both terrified them, but at the same time they never wanted to leave it. Most of us run from things that terrify us. They saw God in a proper perspective. And their hearts were shaken by that. And there was no other place they wanted to go, but they had to. Look at verse 14, our passage for today. Starting at verse 14, it says this. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed. And they ran up to him and they greeted him. And Jesus asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answers, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and he grinds his teeth and he becomes rigid. And so I asked your disciples to cast it out of him and they were not able. And he answered them, oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring the boy to me. And they brought the boy to Jesus. And when the spirit saw Jesus, immediately it convulsed the boy and he fell on the ground and rolled about foaming at the mouth. We'll stop there. Down in the valley, no wonder, no wonder Peter wanted to stay up on the mountain, right? And I'm sure you've had those experiences. You come back from that fantastic retreat, and you're going to walk with God, and nothing's going to stop you. And you walk in your house, and people are screaming, and the water pipe broke, and you got to deal with that, and the boss says, I want to talk to you about something, and you're thrown right back into it. You come home from church, and you get home and the dog threw up all over the carpet. And you're thrown right back into it. And you're thinking, here we go. I just wanted to stay at church. There's a quote, William Barclay, he said this, the solitude of the mountain experiences, the solitude is not meant to make us solitary. It's not so we can all go off and live in a commune somewhere. It's meant to make us better able to meet and to cope with the demands of everyday life. So when the demands of everyday life come upon us, we don't run from them, but now we're prepared to face them. Amen? Amen. Amen. And that's what these guys are going to have to deal with here. Jeter, Jesus, Jeter, he made the Hall of Fame. Uh, <laughs> Jesus, Peter, James, and John, they come down. They encounter the rest of the disciples. Remember, nine of them didn't make their way up that particular mountain. And those nine are in the midst of an argument, in the midst of a great crowd. Jesus has been avoiding the crowds primarily. Uh, and as I said, there's this fight that's going on. Mark 9.14 says, And when they came to the disciples, they saw the great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. Now let me just remind you of sort of the uh, timeline of things. Jesus, for about, uh, we'll just say about a year of ministry, it was traditional ministry. Go into the synagogue, address the Jewish people, explain to them that he is the Messiah. This day that I've just read about is fulfilled in your coming, uh, in your presence here and stuff. Well, the Jewish leaders and things, they rejected Christ. And so essentially that second year of ministry, Jesus pulls out of the synagogues and he goes more to an open air ministry. And he's in the, the streets, if you will, and he's ministering to the large crowds and stuff like that. In the third year, approximately, in the third year of ministry, Jesus has pulled away now from the crowds and he's primarily focusing on his disciples and he's readying them for his crucifixion. And so you, you kind of can watch these transitions in ministries, uh, in ministry that Jesus has gone through. And here he's now in that final stage of things, preparing his disciples 
for what we learned last week he called his departure and um, that he was going to go to Jerusalem, that he would be crucified and on the third day rise again. Now, when ministry opportunities came, he dealt with them. And so he would feed this many people and he would heal this particular person. And today we have one of those interruptions for his primary purpose, uh, where we said is in verse 14, a fight that is going on, an argument that is going on. There's a great crowd that is there. And as they see Jesus coming back to this area where the great crowd is, he's coming down from the mount. I don't know if it was at the foot of the mount, a mile away or whatever. But as Jesus is making his way into this area where this crowd is, they recognize him. They immediately leave the argument that they were observing and they run, as it says, over to Jesus. And we see that there in verse 15. The text doesn't say but it seems to me what's going on is that the crowd had heard that Jesus was in that area. And so they begin to travel to that particular area. But when they get there, Jesus and a few of the disciples aren't there any longer. There's these other guys that are here. And so they're looking for Jesus. They've been waiting for Jesus. Jesus isn't around and then suddenly appears. And so now they go, not like magically, but you know, just suddenly he comes back into town. And so they go running to, to see him, delighted that he's there. This is the guy we came to see. I'm sure Jesus was delighted to see them too. Uh, I, I kind of say that kidding, but he's nice. Jesus is nice. And so uh, there's Jesus, sees this crowd. I'm sure he offered the pleasantries and he said hi and he patted heads and uh, babies and things like that. But what interests Jesus in this scenario that we're looking at is the argument that his nine disciples are having with these scribes. Now, some of our versions, they describe it as like a conversation. Uh, the word really is it's an argument. It's a back and forth. And, and so I imagine as Jesus is walking up on the scene, maybe he's hearing the loud voices that are arguing back and forth at one another. Maybe there's a lot of hand gestures and you don't know when you come on, you know, one of these things. But something is going on. Jesus takes notice of it and he walks it, uh, up on the, the scene here. And he says to them, what are you arguing about? You see that there in verse 16. Now, Jesus is the omniscient one, right? We all agree with that. That's what our theology teaches us. Jesus knows all things. He knows the hearts of men. We've seen that on plenty of examples here. So Jesus isn't asking this question because he wants to get involved in the argument, but he needs the facts first. He needs the information first. He's asking this question because he wants to bring this conversation uh, to a particular place, and he wants to direct it here. What's interesting, so he asked the question. Now, it seems he's asking the question of the disciples. What are you arguing about with them, which is the scribes? It could be he's asking the scribes, what are you arguing about them with disciples? But he poses this question, but nobody answers it initially. And it tells us here that a man from the crowd is going to call out the answer. So look at verse 17. It says, now someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. That's what Jesus wants to get to. And he gets there by asking this question here. Now, either Jesus' question hung in the air. You know, what's everybody fighting about? And nobody answers. The, the disciples don't answer. The scribes don't answer. So finally, this guy says, well, I'll tell you what they're fighting about. You know, and he jumps in. Or the man doesn't give the disciples any time to answer at all. And he just jumps in. One way or another, though, this man speaks up and he says these words essentially. He says, I brought my son to you, but you weren't here. And so then I saw your disciples and I've heard about those guys. And so I asked them, but they weren't able to help me. 
he says in verse uh, 18. Now, maybe that's part of the reason why the disciples don't answer the question, because they kind of failed in ministry. And so I don't want to talk about it. It's not important what we're arguing about, you know, or whatever. So maybe they're a little bit embarrassed about their powerlessness in this particular circumstance. Or again, maybe the man just jumped in and didn't even give him an opportunity to answer. But the man's response, I think, gives us some insight into the nature of the argument that they were having. It seemed, it, the text never says, this is what we're arguing about. But based on this man's response, it seems like he's offering up what they're arguing about and has something to do with his son that has a demonic spirit that he hoped that the disciples uh, would be able to heal the son from. Well, as we see, the disciples are not able to heal the son for some reason. And so perhaps the scribes begin mocking the disciples. Oh, yeah, you're the big ministry people. We hear about you, you travel all around. Look at you now. You can't do anything. And so maybe there's some mocking of the disciples. Perhaps even there's some mocking of the discipler because the disciples were a direct uh, indicator, if you will, of the power of the discipler. And we know the scribes don't like Jesus. And so now maybe they use this as an opportunity to kind of dig Jesus a bit. And so somebody says, that's quite a master you got there. Can't even teach his disciples how to heal somebody. And then some of the disciples, maybe they get a little fleshly. This is just in my mind. Why don't you come over here and say that, you know, kind of thing. And so you have one of these things that are going on here. It could be that it's a, a theological argument. We know the scribes were the experts in the law. And one of the things that the scribes loved to do was to correct everybody else's theology. And so perhaps the scribes come on the scene and they say, I know why you can't heal the boy. Because everybody knows, the scribes say, this is what they believe, it's not true, but it's what they believe. Everybody knows that you have to know a demon's name and you have to declare by name for that demon to come out, otherwise they won't listen to you. And since this demon, look at it says in verse 17, makes this little boy mute, or this kid mute, and he obviously can't say what his name is, that's why, you dummies. You know, maybe the scribes are bringing that up. And then the disciples respond, that's so stupid. That's an old wives' tale. I've seen plenty of times where Jesus just spoke to someone, didn't even know the demon's name, and healed him. And so you're dumb, or whatever. And so then they have this little argument about that. And so, you know, you got this thing that is going back and forth here with these disciples. And again, I don't know exactly what is going on, but I can imagine some scenarios that will quickly move it in a path of an argument here. And I also imagine Peter is saying, you see, this is why we should have stayed up on the mountain. You know, that's what I was trying to tell you, Lord. All right, because here you have a group of religious scholars debating with the disciples about the proper way or how they can't heal this boy, and yet they're not doing anything to heal this boy. How about healing the boy? If you know how to do it, do it, you know, here. Nobody's um, doing what they need to do. And so it's a frustrating circumstance that is here, especially, you can imagine, for the boy's father who's come all this way to heal the boy. Turn to your neighbor and say, comes all this way. I'm sorry. That's just a cheap ploy to have a moment. One of the things I really appreciate about this, I can, I'm giving you these like little scenarios about how the fight escalates because that's my mind. See, that's me. 
And I would be in there, and I would want to be saying these little things with the little, you know, sourpuss attitude um, here. But notice how Jesus handles the whole circumstance. There's mayhem. There's a huge crowd. They're running toward him. There's people arguing and yelling. There's scribes who don't like him, and they're saying what they're saying. There's a dad, please help me, help me, here. There's a boy that's demon-possessed uh, and all that uh, goes with that or whatever. So this is crazy. There's just mayhem on the scene. And you notice Jesus' response. He comes on the scene, and very calmly and very collectedly, he's posing questions. He's not freaking out. See, those circumstances, when I'm not like ready for them, they cause me to like lose my cool. And they just cause me like, ah, like that. But Jesus here, very calmly, he just says, what are you arguing about? He doesn't lose his cool here. Now, notice the man describes the predicament that he's in. It starts in verse 17. He says, someone from the crowd answers, teacher, I brought my son. He has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, he foams, and he grinds his teeth, and he, his mouth does, and he becomes rigid. And so I asked your disciples to cast him out, but they were not able. Now, as you look at that, it, it's almost like the evidences of an epileptic seizure that you're seeing there. So if you've ever seen that in public or you've uh, seen videos of that, the seizures, the being thrown down on the ground, the grinding of the teeth, uh, becoming rigid the way he did... Uh, it almost appears like that's sort of a scenario that's going on. But take notice, the text is very careful to point out that the boy has a spirit that causes these things. A little bit later on, Jesus is going to uh, deliver the boy of the spirit. And so it would be wrong for us to look at this text and say, oh, this kid has epilepsy. And uh, they just didn't understand it back then. But we know now, uh, because what you're essentially saying is that Jesus didn't understand it back then. All right, and so we have a scenario here with an epileptic-like seizure that this boy is going through, um, but it's attributed to a spirit. And in verse 25, Jesus is going to rebuke that spirit. Two quick points about this. Number one, this is not to say that what present-day doctors diagnose as an epileptic condition is actually something that is demon possession. You don't want to take that from this particular text because this kid has a demon, as the, the passage tells us. But the second point is, is that it might be, because the scenarios are very, very similar. And so at the very, very least, as you're doing your doctor's visits and things like that, you want to be a person of prayer as well, because it perhaps might be a spiritual matter that you are facing. This boy has a demon. And the father comes, asks the disciples for help, but as we see there in verse 18, they weren't able to do so. Now that, you might say, okay. I can't deliver demons either. You know, you might be thinking here. But these disciples had delivered people of demons before. Back in Mark chapter 6, you may recall, when Jesus sent the disciples out on sort of a little short-term mission trip, and he split them up into groups of two, and he sent six little groups out of there. It, it tells us in the Matthew passage, also in the Mark passage, but it tells us in the Matthew passage, Jesus said to them, I'm sending you out and I'm empowering you to heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, and then notice, drive out demons. He says, freely you've been given these things. People used to charge money to uh, deliver a person of their demon possession. He says, freely you've been given these things you've received, freely give uh, as well. Now, Mark's account of that short-term mission trip tells us that when they came back, it says they went out, they proclaimed that people should repent, and they cast out many demons 
and they anointed with oil many who were sick and they healed them. And so Matthew tells us he empowered them to go out and deliver people of demon possession. Mark tells us they came back and they had delivered many people of their demon possession. So here we are now, a year later, and they're encountering this boy that has this demon, and as the text says there, they're unable to cast it out. They're unable to drive out these demons. For some reason, what they previously had the power to do, in this particular, particular instance, they're powerless to do. And that must be very confusing for the disciples, and it must be very troubling for the disciples. And I'm sure they love it, when the scribes now come up and they start criticizing them about their inability to do these particular things. We actually know that that inability, why couldn't they deliver them this time? Jesus answers that question about eight or ten verses later. Look down just real quickly at verse 28. They're going to ask that particular question, and Jesus is going to say in the next verse or so, this kind only comes out through prayer and fasting. But you see there, in asking the question, when everything is said and done, you could see it troubles the disciples. How come we could do it before, but now we can't here? We'll talk about Jesus' answer later. Continuing in verse 19, Jesus says, O faithless generation, how long am I to bear with you or to be with you? How long uh, am I to be with you? Bring him, it says, to me. You can almost hear a sigh from the Lord. <sighs> faithless generation. How long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Now, the question you have to ask yourself is, who's the faithless generation? And so is Jesus sort of letting out this frustration uh, regarding the disciples, calling them a faithless generation? Is he referring to the scribes that are there in the midst of this? Is he talking about the, the dad and calling him faithless in this particular thing? Well, to, we don't know. So we, I'm not going to get it wrong because we don't know. So I'll just pose it could be any of those particular three because the text doesn't actually say. If I had to pick one, I'd lean toward the disciples, but it may not be that. But cer certainly I think we, could, we would all see that the phrase could aptly apply to all of the parties because it applied to the entire age that Jesus was dealing with, everybody that was living in that particular generation. It was a faithless, fallen generation. And Jesus is trying to teach his disciples how to minister there. And notice what Jesus then does in verse 19. He says, bring him to me. Bring him to me. The same thing that you and I are called to do now is to bring these needs that seem to be beyond us, to bring them to the Lord. That's what Jesus says of this little boy. Bring him to me, verse 20. And so they brought the boy to Jesus. Now you'll notice the response of the demon. It says there, and when the spirit saw him, Jesus, that is, immediately it convulsed the boy and he fell on the ground and he rolled about and he was foaming at the mouth. And I imagine the whole crowd maybe just pulls back a little bit as this is happening. I imagine the father falls down on the ground and grabs his hand behind the boy's head to kind of protect the boy from banging his head on the ground or, or something like that. And now notice Jesus, though. He calmly asks another question. And he says, how long has this been happening to him? Now, respectfully, part of me is thinking, who cares how long it's been happening? Just heal him. Uh, that the dad might be thinking here. What's the difference how long it has been happening? And again, Jesus knows how long it's been happening. He knows all things. 
And so he poses a question for what purpose? I think he poses a question. We've seen him do this before. That's why I think maybe here again to show sort of the magnitude of the situation because everybody else that is observing this doesn't know it. This has been happening for a day, a week. No, it's been happening since childhood, it says, from childhood. That word from childhood, uh, it, it means since he was a baby. So all his life is what the man is saying. We don't know how old the boy is. He's a boy. That, that, that word is used there to describe someone, uh, you know, not 16, 17, 18, somewhere 10, 11, 5, something in that particular range. And he says it's been happening all his life to him. Now, he also adds it not only throws him down on the ground, but it tries to destroy him. And so we come by fire, and he all of a sudden has one of these seizures, and it tries to throw him into the fire. We come by water, and it throws him into the water so that he might drown. This spirit is trying to destroy my boy, he says here. And you can imagine, if you're a parent, or even if you're not a parent, but you, you can imagine if an event like this happened one time to your kid and how shaken you would be, and you'd never forget that day when Johnny you know, had that seizure and, and all that was going on. Well, this happens again and again and again to this kid, many times here. And I'm sure the man is tired of it. And there's a roller coaster of emotions this guy is going through because he, he likely lives somewhere up in that particular area, word filtered out, Jesus is up in this area. Remember that guy everybody's been talking about down in the Galilee region? He's up in this area. And so the man makes a trek to go find Jesus, only to discover, oh, he just left. You just missed him. Can you imagine? You've come all this way to find this Jesus. Your, your hope is building. You're letting your mind go to the place, what it's going to be like to walk home with your healthy son. And all of a sudden you get there and you're like, you just missed him. I'm so sorry. And the frustration and the anger and the sadness and all of those things. And so then the man said, well, you know, I remember people said there's this guy and his disciples that are doing these things. And so he asked the disciples and hope maybe builds up again. Well, maybe these men here will be able to do something and only to find that none of them are able to do it. And I have to imagine that one of the guys prayed and it, nothing happened. And he said, well, move over. Let me try. And another guy tried. And we get to the situation where none of them are able to heal the boy. And so then the man turns to the scribes. And again, maybe the scribes are saying, well, the reason it's not working is because you're not doing it right. And so the man turns to them and says, well, then could you do it? And they, well, no, we don't do that. We just correct other people for how they're doing it. And so this guy, you, can, you, can you feel what he's feeling? Finally, Jesus appears. And there's, no doubt, a flood of hope. But I think it's a very, very faint hope, because notice what he says to Jesus. He says, uh, it often casts him into the fire, et cetera, trying to destroy him. He says, but if you, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Now, this guy didn't come all this way for an if, but something in, in the transaction here of time changed his heart a bit. And he left, he had come with a confidence that Jesus could heal his son, but now he's at the place of hoping if you could do anything, if you would be willing to do anything here. Doubt has begun to enter in into this man's life. And so there's this plea for help. That's sort of like one part faith, two parts disbelief or unbelief here or doubt. 
And so he says to the man, if you can. Now notice Jesus' interesting response. He says, if you can. I used to read that wrong. I used to think that there was like a question mark there, like, if you can, who are you talking to? Kind of thing. But in reality, there's no question mark. There's an exclamation point. And so he says, if you can. And so let me read it to you. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. And so it seems to me, this is what Jesus is saying. You're asking me if I can do anything, but let me ask you, can you do this one thing for me? Despite all that has caused you to doubt, can you trust still that I'm able to heal your son? Because he says all things are possible for the one who believes. Can you do that one thing now? Can you continue to believe? Jesus tells the man, look, it's not a question of my ability to, believe, to heal or not. But it's a question right now of your ability to keep on believing despite all that you've been through. And we don't have it here in Mark, but it is in the Matthew passage that Jesus added, For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there and it'll move and nothing will be impossible for you. Now, we talk about mustard seeds a lot. If you've been around, you've probably heard. A mustard seed is about the size of something more familiar, a sesame seed. You get a sesame seed bagel, that's about the size of a mustard seed. Size of a mustard seed. It's a very, very small little seed. There's nothing too significant about it. And Jesus says to him, if you have faith, the size, that little, just a teeny little bit of faith, nothing will be impossible for you. So it's a small little seed, but the potential for life is in that seed. When mixed with the, the right in, uh, ingredients, put in the ground, water, and all those kinds of things, life can come forth. And so Jesus is telling this guy, look, you have a tiny bit of faith. Exercise that faith. Continue to do so. David Guzik pointed out, when we trust God as true and all his promises as true, all things he promises are possible. And the man gets Jesus' point. Notice what he goes on to say. It says, immediately the father of the child, he cried out and he said, I believe, help my unbelief. I believe, help my unbelief. Have you ever prayed a prayer like that or said something like that? Have you ever felt that way where, yeah, I, I totally am with you, Lord, I think. You know, it's just this, somebody called it the, it's the paradox of faith. Is that you believe and yet you have trouble that is believing. Notice this about the man. His unbelief isn't some kind of rebellion. This isn't the same unbelief as the Pharisees and the scribes have. This is not a matter of rebellion against God. It's not a matter of rejecting God's promise. It's his struggle. It's his simple struggle against hope that there are these waves of doubt that ebb and flow in this man's life. And he, as I said, he expresses the paradox of faith and unbelief that all of God's people experience. And so if you've ever found yourself in a place where you're absolutely confident in the things of God and at the same time struggling to believe the things of God, that, that's the experience of the Christian throughout history. They ebb and they flow. Our confidence ebbs and flows. And so this man, he asserts his faith, but at the same time he recognizes the weakness of his faith. I'm reading this little commentary. It's more of like a devotional commentary on Mark. And it's written by Michael Card. Some of you know Michael Card, the musician um, who writes some really wonderful songs and stuff. He, he's just a really deep fella. And he wrote this little uh, devotional commentary. And he describes these conflicting emotions. We have it there. He says, in the tangle of the human heart, we sometimes do believe and disbelieve in the same moment. And I've been there. And this man, he believes... 
but he's all too conscious that his belief is less than perfect. And notice this about the Lord. The Lord is okay with that. The Lord doesn't say to him, how dare you come to me and doubt who I am? Why don't you go home and get yourself together, then come back, you know, to me? Like, that's offensive to me. How rude. He, the Lord doesn't say anything like that. He honors the man's willingness to believe and the struggle that the guy is going through. And we see that there in 25 and 26. When Jesus saw the crowd running to him, he rebukes the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you to come out of him. You see how he answered the man's prayer? He heals the boy's, his son. He says, and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing terribly, the spirit came out and the boy was like a corpse so that most of the people there said he is dead. Now, there may be some of us here today that are unbelievers. And I'm really glad you're here. All right? I'm glad you're investigating these things, trying to figure these things out. But you may be here today thinking, you know what, I believe. I, I hear what you're saying. It's good. I I'm with you to some degree. But yet I have unbelief. I believe that Jesus gave his life for me, maybe you're thinking. And yet I have my doubts. What if he won't receive me? I know you tell me he'll receive me, but what if he won't receive me? What if he can't forgive my sins? What if I submit myself to Jesus, as you say to do, and the struggles continue? You see, you have belief, and at the same time, you have the what-ifs and the doubts. May I just say this, like this man, bring those to the Lord. Because the Lord will meet you in that place of your doubts, and he'll bring faith. And he brings faith, and we grow in faith. And as we see his interaction here, the Lord honors the man's willingness to receive. That guy believed the best that he could, and the Lord immediately responded to that faith. I didn't have all the I don't even have all the answers now. I didn't have all the answers when I came to faith. But I knew enough, and I stepped out of the boat, so to speak, as we read in another story, and the Lord enabled me to stand upon the waters. Do you, do you know the scenario I'm talking about? Peter steps out of the boat. He didn't know how it was all going to work, but Jesus said, come. And that was my step of faith. I stepped out and said, Lord, I, I'm, here I am, what, 17 years old. Not now. <laughs> but I'm going to step out in faith, and we'll see what this life has to hold. The Lord met him. And he heals the kid, right? So much for the scribes' theories. You can't heal him unless you know his name or whatever. Jesus doesn't know the kid's name, doesn't ask for the spirit's name, I should say. And he rebukes the spirit, he commands it to come out and to never go back in. Verse 26, the spirit is forced to comply. What the disciples couldn't do, what the man couldn't do, what the scribes couldn't do, Jesus does. It's, it's 17 words in the Greek language, uh, which is what, you know, kind of the original manuscript there. Jesus spoke a different language. It may have been a few less, a few more. Um, but in just a few words, Jesus delivers this boy. And the authority of the Lord is revealed in that instance there. Do you think any of the scribes repented of their pride and their sin from that scenario? Maybe. It doesn't say. Most of the scribes rejected Jesus, but they have this visible display right there in front of them of the Lord's authority and his power. And perhaps one or two or a group of them uh, repented. The passage goes on, verse 27, Jesus took him, that's the boy, by the hand, and he lifts him up, and the boy arose Arose, I should say. And when he had, it says that there, uh, now verse 28, when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? 
And Jesus said, this, time, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Now that word kind refers to, it's a terminology which is used to describe either a stock, a tribe, or a nation. And so you think of a group of cattle, and you're going to separate, and not just cattle, but animals or whatever, a flock of whatever you might have, and you're going to separate this type of animal from that type of animal. That's the word kind that is used there. And so it seems to be implying here that what Jesus is saying is there's sort of different types of demons, a hierarchy in the demonic realm there, which shouldn't surprise us. We know there is sort of different levels of angels, and we have the archangel and so on and so forth. And so it seems that there's this different kind of demon here, which requires prayer. However, it seems, I should say, apparently some demons are stronger than others. However, I don't think what Jesus is getting at is, well, unfortunately, you just got a, you got a tough demon here. You need to pray for demons like this. Other ones, you just talk to them and you'll be good. It's all spiritual warfare. And so I think Jesus is getting at something different here when he makes that statement, this kind only comes out through prayer. A lot of manuscripts add and fasting, but since most of us don't like fasting, we drop that out here. That, that, that can't be right, or whatever it may be. But this kind only comes out through prayer and fasting. And so the reason for the weakness of the disciples in this scenario, this instance, Jesus tells us, is because of their lack of prayer and fasting. Two spiritual disciplines that continue to today, which draw us closer to the heart of God, more in line with the power that comes from God. And again, you go back to Mark chapter 6, when the disciples were sent forth, there they had the power, they were being used to deliver people of demon possession. Here they don't have that anymore. And Jesus tells us the answer is because they were no longer nurturing that power with prayer and with fasting. And because they had stopped doing that, the power had vanished from them. And so the scenario is that the disciples are trying to cast out this demon in their own power. And instead, they're going to discover what they need to do is return to the place where they're completely dependent on God's power once more, working through them. Have you ever done that? I remember the first time I ever got up to preach a sermon. Never prayed so much as I prayed for that particular sermon. And I'm sending out emails, hey, would you please be praying for me? You know, and I'm really, you know, this and that and so on and so forth. Well, then you do it for a while. It's just sort of like, all right, here we go. Let's give the people a show. You know, this kind of thing. And you just sort of like wing it. You, you see what I'm saying? Or the first time you ever gone, went into the rescue mission or you ever went into a prison and you're freaked out by the whole experience there and you're praying and you're praying the whole time and you're working it out with your team there, you be praying while I'm talking. And then when you talk, I'll be praying for you because you're dependent. But you do it 10 times, 100 times, it's just sort of like, it's old hat. I don't need to depend as much anymore here. The disciples had, we did this before. What were the magic words again? Come out of him in Jesus' name. That's right, I remember now. You know, and so you try the old uh, techniques and it doesn't happen. And Jesus said, this kind only comes out through prayer and fasting. Let me, let me say this to you. You may not have the need, the opportunity to have to deliver someone of demon possession. But in the same way you would need to be dependent on the Lord in that scenario, you have the need to love someone that you don't feel like loving. And you try and do it in your own power. How's that work? Not really well, does it? Because right? you come to that breaking point where you're done 
and you've brought me to this place, and I ain't got no more to give you, and so I'm going to give it to you. Something else now, all righty? You need to be in prayer and in fasting in order to face those particular circumstances. You may have instances where you need to forgive people you don't feel like forgiving, and they haven't earned your forgiveness, and they didn't even ask you for your forgiveness. And so now you are totally justified in harboring bitterness toward that person, so you think. And Jesus said, you need to let it go. You need to forgive them. And you try and do it in your own power, and then they do something else, and you're right back where you were before, and I'm going to kid them. And you need to be in prayer and fasting about that particular, you may have to teach a sermon. You may have to go serve in some particular way. You may have to serve at home. When you're old, I'm always the one doing these dishes, tired of it, kind of thing. And so you serve. And all of that has to be done in the power of the Holy Spirit. But we forget that a lot of times, don't we? And we try and do it in our own strength. And we fail. Now let me just make one final point this morning before we uh, break toward communion here. Jesus says this kind only comes out through prayer and fasting. Now look at the text. How much time did the disciples have to prepare for this encounter with this man? Did the man send him a letter? I'm going to be visiting with you tomorrow and I'd like you to heal my son. Or did the man just come right up to him? He came right up to him. This is not a hard one. I'm not trying to trick you, you know, and I need to get you points off because everybody can't get 100. You know, like, like I want us to get this one right here. All right. And so there they are. They come out on the scene and they are told to heal the kid or they're asked to heal the kid. And Jesus said, well, you didn't heal him because you didn't fast about it. Well, I didn't even know he was coming and pray about it. I didn't know this kid was coming. How could I have had time to pray and fast? That's Jesus's point. You don't know when that tragedy is going to come that you're going to have to face. You don't know when your spouse is going to come home grumpy and be mean to everyone and you're going to want to respond by being mean to them. You don't know when you're going to have that opportunity where someone says, I just don't know the meaning of life to you. And you don't know that opportunity is going to be there, which means what? You have to be prayed up before. Because when you're faced with it, you don't have the time to be praying and fasting about those things. It has to become a part of your lifestyle where you are investing into the spiritual so that your gas tank is filled up with the spirit so that when those circumstances and opportunities come, you'll be prepared to meet them. Amen? You catch that? And so invest in that. Again, when the opportunity is placed there before you, you don't have the time any longer to go back and get yourself ready for it. You do that before. And that's why we talk about again and again and again. Take time with the Lord on a daily basis. I like to do it first thing in the morning. Take time with the Lord on a daily basis so that I'm ready for whatever my day is going to hold uh, before me that I can respond in the spirit as opposed to in the flesh. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let us pray together. Um, That sounded very, like, religious. Let us pray. Let's pray together. We're going to bring the worship team back up, and we'll, we'll sing a song. We'll distribute the elements, and then we'll celebrate communion. Let's do that. Father, we thank you for this lesson. Lord, we get this dad. Lord, we see his need, his heartbreak, his frustration, his hopelessness, his doubts. And Lord, we've been there. Lord, we see these disciples. We've been there. All the frustrations of things around them and seemingly powerless, powerless in the midst of it. Lord, we get that we understand it. Lord, we've been in situations where there's mayhem around us and we've responded in ways that are just not good. And we observe you and, Lord, we want to be more like that. And so, Lord, a lot of things for us to consider here in this passage. 
Lord, we thank you for your word, and we pray, I pray, Lord, that you would take these things, Lord, sort of embed them into the deep places of our hearts, and Lord, as we chew on them, and as we meditate on them going forward this week, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would make unique application for each one of us as to how, you know, that's this part of that message yesterday, this speaks to this area, now apply it, and, and that we would grow as a result of our time here. Lord, we're grateful for the time to just sort of uh, silent, silence our heart, calm our hearts, our minds, so that we might hear from you. And so, Lord, we ask your blessing on this time. In Jesus' good name, amen. Amen. Thanks again for listening. If you'd like more information about the church, please visit ccmercer.com or come worship with us in Ewing, New Jersey on Sundays at 10 a.m.